The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and 1077 FM HD 2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And lots of interesting stuff going on in technology, as always. Happy birthday to email. Email is now 50 years old. IBM developed a debater program that can debate pretty well. It actually convinced a few people that they were right on their uh, with their arguments. Sing has launched a way... It's a new app, a free app for the iPhone, where you can mint your own NFTs, non-fungible tokens. And I've already minted two NFTs, and I'm ready to put them on the sales block. How come I'm not surprised? <laughs> I'm going to say it's so easy. I minted them in 20 minutes, Jim. I'll explain how I did it. Biden is going to uh, let Trump's H-1B visa uh, ban expire. That is really good news for international students because they have been unable to get H-1B visas, and we need to keep these tech guys in the country to help fuel our tech boom, continue to fuel our tech boom. And uh, this week we're going to feature the man who is lovingly called the Italian father of the PC. He developed the first personal computer while he worked there for Olivetti there in Italy. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. An email from Susan in Alexandria. Good morning, Dr. Shirts and Jim. I just read that the Bank of England released a new 50-pound note honoring Alan Turing. Of course, you've already featured Alan in profiles in IT. Uh, but th they used a new technology, uh, which they called Polymer said, I went back to the Stratford website uh, and searched for uh, works on polymers. And on April 13th, 2013, you covered the topic, Stanford creates biological transistor. And uh, I ran across that, and I realized that many of those ideas are similar to the techniques they used to make the, uh, the latest COVID vaccines. It said, Stanford, uh, um, they use the... Um, the cell's environment to store a record of changes that occur, and they store that in the memory of the DNA, and that can trigger some kind of response. And they can use it to make a transistor where the response could be allowing current to flow. So I really don't understand how it went on, but I tell you, I went back and loved listening to it, and it's great that you guys cover all this material on Tech Talk. We appreciate your show, Susan and Alexandria. Well, Susan, thanks for the feedback. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, actually amazed you went back into the start for the techtalk.stratford.edu 
because you can search all of our shows all the way back to 2000 to see what we were talking about back in the day. But it is true, DNA is a marvelous structure. I mean, each position in the DNA can have one of four bases, uh, and that's how it encodes information, the ordering of how those bases are set. So that means that each location of DNA is equivalent to two bits of information. So if you look at the length of our DNA with each position corresponding to two bits, it turns out the human DNA is around 720 megabytes. That would actually fit on a DVD. And, uh, and it's actually a molecular engine that can split, multiply, and divide. And it actually is the, the boot-up program for the human body. It is absolutely categorically amazing. And we're going to be able to use molecular engines in the future to manufacture things. I mean, this is going to be the next big breakthrough. Once we get molecular engines, you, you know that thing in the, uh, where you can press a button and, you're, and, and it cooks a hamburger. It, it creates a hamburger for you out of nothing. Kind of like in the that's Jetsons. Done with an, that's done with an, a molecular engine. So that little futuristic device may in fact exist 50 years from now. It's going to totally change manufacturing as we know it. And uh, the miracle of what DNA can do as a molecular engine is just the tip of the iceberg. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc, Jim, and the reverberant Mr. Big Voice. Wow. A major flaw in SMS let hackers take over phone numbers in minutes by simply paying a company to reroute the text messages. Here's an interesting article about the hacker who paid 16 bucks to do it. All the best, your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, that story is really true and it's very alarming. The hacker used a company called Sakari, which helps businesses do SMM marketing and mass messaging. And they used that company to reroute the text messages from a particular cell phone to them. Uh, this company was doing this to, to, to help companies use text messaging, but it's a huge security flaw. Now, this, uh, this was an overlooked attack vector, and, uh, and it just lets you know that the unregulated protocol of SMS, uh, you know, has flaws in it. So what this hacker did, he didn't have to hijack the SIM card. He simply rerouted the text messages, and then he went to specific accounts that had two-factor authentication and he hacked into them because the second factor authentication would come to him via text message, which he received. And he was able to steal these accounts. And this is the very way that they used like to, uh, like to get into Bitcoin wallets. It's a, it's a huge problem. And he did it totally legally. He used a prepaid card to take over the account. Now, but what he did, he was actually stealing the account of his friend. It was an experiment. And he, he basically logged on to his friend's Bumble account, his WhatsApp account, and his Postmates account, all using the two-factor authentication. They then wrote an article about it. And once the wireless companies saw this article... They immediately changed how they handle these kind of requests. And now Verizon, T-Mobile, and AT&T, which uh, had been allowing text enables BYON, that's called 
bring your own number, BYON. They ha- that's what he was using. That service was a BYON number. They have now disabled Doc, BYON. How does that work? Can you, you can select your own authentication numbers? Is that what that what, is? What, what they did, this company would go to Verizon and say, we want you to reroute the text messages to this number through our servers, and then we're going to do marketing. I mean, and so Verizon and the carriers would reroute the text message through these servers. And that and that that service was called BYON. In other words, you 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 tell the service what your number is, and you get text messages from that number. And I mean, this is a major flaw in text messaging. And now those carriers are no longer going to route any text messages through the aerial link gateway, which was what was doing it. I mean, this was actually quite alarming that this was available and so easily done. So it was actually not a, it was a, it was a white hat hacker. He was hacking a friend so they could write an article about it to get the wireless companies to close that loop. Uh, We got an email from Roblin in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I installed the kids game on my iPhone. And it teaches them how to do basic math in order to solve a series of mysteries. Now, my daughter turned four, and this this game is between four to six, so I think she could actually do it. So I want to give her the phone so she can play this game. However, I only want her to play this game on the phone. I don't want her to do anything else with the phone. Is there any way that I can limit her access to other applications on the iPhone before I give it to her? Well... The good news is, Roblin, iPhones have a feature called guided access that does exactly what you want. All you have to do, go to your iPhone settings, and you enable guided access. And then after you've enabled it, you simply tell guided access what apps you want the person to have when they're using guided access. So when you give your phone to your daughter, you just simply activate guided access, and she can only use those particular apps. Now, if you want to know more about guided access, uh, there's I've got a link here for it, but it's kind of complicated. All you do is go to the Apple website and search for guided access, and you'll come up with an FAQ that's got all the details on it. Now, by the way, guided access also works for iPads. So you could also activate this on an iPad, and it may be easier for her to play the game on an iPad instead of on an iPhone. We got an email from Helen in Rockville. Dear Tech Doc. I got a serious problem on how to fix it. My ex is stalking me on Facebook. Every time I block him, he just opens the new accounts and starts stalking me again. I'm afraid to post anything because he writes nasty comments. What can I do? How can I prevent him from doing this, Helen in Rockville? Well, Helen, unfortunately, stalkers on Facebook are really everywhere, and and they, they could be dangerous. If this guy's making physical threats, call the police. But if it's just being annoying to you, you can actually make it harder for him to get back on your account. What you got to do, you got to you got to adjust your privacy settings. So if you're using, say, the um, your uh, the web version uh, of it that would be on your browser or on your computer, simply click on the account icon in the upper right hand side, then click on settings and privacy, then click on settings, and then there's a uh, there's a privacy link over in the left-hand column. Click on that, and then you can, in the activity section, 
you say, who can see future posts? And you just set it to friends. So only friends can see future posts, which means if he's not a friend with a new account, he can't see future posts. Then you can go down a couple of lines and click limit past posts and click limit past posts again. And then you can say you only want friends to see past posts. Then as far as being people being able to find you on Facebook, uh, you go down to a section called how people find to connect with you and you change every option in that to friends of friends. So if he's not a friend of a friend, he can't even, he can't even request, make a friend request. But if he is a friend of a friend, he can make a friend request. So be careful that he's not impersonated another friend and you'll let him back in. But if you go through these changes, you'll probably keep this guy out of your Facebook account for a while. Best of luck with that. If you uh, impersonate somebody on Facebook, can't that get you sent into uh, Facebook prison? Uh, it yeah, should be a I don't Facebook know. prison of uh, offense. Yeah. It could be Facebook prison until you have another account. <laughs> <laughs> Only your account is imprisoned, not the person. Well, it should be the it should be the person too, I think. It should be the person, but that's not how it happens. Actions have consequences. I know. I know. But if if he does threaten anything violent, you can get the police involved. Well, that's true. And they they will investigate. Yep, yep. We got an email from Craig in Virginia Beach. Dear Doc and Jim, I uh I have a used but working 500 gigabyte hard drive at home and uh, that I could install on my Windows 10 desktop computer. And I'd like to span it with the 750 gigabyte hard drive that's already there. That'd give me 1.25 terabytes of space. Uh, so I went to, uh, to Best Buy and talked to the Geek Squad guy. And he said, well, I wouldn't span two hard drives because if one hard drive fails, you, you, lose, you lose the data on everything. He said, that's not a very good way to do it. He says, I would recommend that you not span the two hard drives, but you just buy a two terabyte hard drive and install it. And oh, by the way, I've got a two terabyte hard drive right here that I could sell you. And, <laughs> and now I want to know, was he giving me the truth or is he just trying to sell me a hard drive? <laughs> Craig in Virginia Beach. Well, um, actually, <laughs> the Geek Squad does have a have a reputation for trying to push hardware. That is true. But in this case, he's telling you the truth. If you span two hard drives and one fails, you lose the data across the whole system. So you've basically doubled your risk in terms of a hard drive failure and data loss. I'm thinking uh, hard drives are so cheap, you should just buy a two terabyte hard drive. And I would not have Best Buy install it. I think you should install it. Uh, really, uh, you'll save a lot of money. You can, you can either... You can go to Amazon and get a two terabyte hard drive and you'll you'll probably get really a good price. I mean, if you would pay Best Buy to span the two hard drives and have them do it, they would charge you more than the cost of a two terabyte hard drive. So this is actually cheaper to do for you. So just buy a two terabyte hard drive. Then you open up your uh, computer, install it in an open drive bay. Then you, what you want to do, you want to copy your current hard drive to the new hard drive. And there's a program that's really nice called Clonezilla. Clonezilla. And that will clone the hard drive. So it will copy your 500 megabyte hard drive to the 2 terabyte hard drive. So use Clonezilla to copy all the contents over there. And then what you want to do, you want to shut down the computer, disconnect the cables from the old hard drive, boot the computer into Windows, uh, 
you know, boot it up because it will now boot up on, on the new hard drive and make sure everything's working as it should be. Once you know you've got all your data and the hard drive's working perfectly with the new two terabyte hard drive, you can basically turn your computer down and you can uh, basically reformat the old hard drive and then you can reinstall it in the computer. And you want to check the BIOS to make certain that you're booting up on the new hard drive, on the two terabyte hard drive. You want to make certain you set that up as the uh, as as the as the hard drive that you're booting off of. That, so then what you'll have, you'll have 2.5 terabytes of hard drive space. Two terabytes will be the bootable drive, and then you've got an extra 500 megabytes, which is a second drive they can use to, to copy stuff to. So you, like if you wanted to, uh, you got pictures on the main hard drive, you could, you could get a second copy on the other hard drive. And so it just gives you a nice option, but I would not spam the two hard drives. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It is Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk on Federal News Network. You can hear us on 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, 1077 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu and you can learn how to go to Stratford University right there on the website. Back in just a moment. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Pierre Giorgio Perato. Pierre Giorgio Perotto is an Italian engineer and inventor who designed the Programma 101, the world's first personal computer. He is affectionately known as the Italian father of the PC. You know, Jim, the PC has many, many fathers. It does, I and I thought we'd have, some, we'd have some appropriate music to play here, some little Italian dinner music while you... Oh, yes. There you go. Isn't that nice? Oh, yeah. Well, Pierre was born in Turin, Italy, December 24th, 1930. 
Turin, of course, is the uh, is the fashion capital now of Italy, and it was ground central for COVID because well, they had all the that. workers working in the factories who were from China, uh-huh. and they had flights back and forth to China. So this is their factory music there in Turin. Is it I really? Just, it, it's beautiful. also good music to find a shroud by. Yes, it, it certainly is. Now, he gra- he went to Turin Polytechnic, and he got a degree in engineering and aeronautical engineering, electrical engineering and aeronautical engineering. Uh, now, uh, after he got his degree, he taught for many years at the same university at Turin Polytechnic, and he published several books, and he wrote articles about strategy, business organization, and technology. <coughs> well, finally— What in the world <laughs> happened there? I don't know. I uh, just a little coughing here. It's a little cough. It's, it I don't have a like cough a, button down here, Jim. Um, I know. Well, we'll have to work on that. We're going to have to work on get some high technology down here. So he he got he got fed up with academia and he decided to start a a real job with business. So he he went he went to work for Fiat in aeronautical in the aeronautical research group because he had. He had, he, had, he had also got a degree in aeronautical engineering, and so he went to Fiat, and he, was, he performed test calculations on supersonic uh, aircraft design. You know, I had no idea that Fiat was working on supersonic aircraft, Jim. I, that, that's, that's really news to me. That's interesting. Now, back in either. the days, these were very complicated calculations, aerodynamic calculations, and they were performed largely on hand-operated mechanical calculators. I'm going to look up something here. And this is when Pierre said, you know, there's got to be a better way than this. So in 1957, he left Fiat and he joined Olivetti. Now, this was the Italian firm that launched the country's first typewriter factory back in 1908. They were absolute leaders in mechanical devices, typewriters, mechanical calculators, and he went to work for them in uh, 1957. Now, Olivetti wanted to be an innovator again. They were a pioneer when it came to typewriters, but they wanted also to be pioneers when it came to electronic computers because computers were now just being developed in both the United States and Britain. So uh, Perotto, when he, when, he went to the, uh, when he went to Olivetti, he worked on the, uh, on the first fully transistorized mainframe computer in the world there at uh, at, uh, at, um, at Olivetti. It was called the ILEA 9003, and that launched in 1959. Which is why he, he was thinking, about, well, this is pretty good. I'm here working on computers. We just launched a mainframe. We are ready, good. We are, we are good to go. The next year, 1960, the... Uh, Andrio, Andriano Olivetti, the, t- the firm's president, died. Mm. And Olivetti went into a deep financial crisis. And the CEOs, the next CEO, had the brilliant idea, let's get rid of all this electronic stuff, like <laughs> computers, and let's go back to our base, mechanical machines, like typewriters. And we will prevail. Well, that was kind of stupid, actually. Well, Perotto was then, because they eliminated his division, he was appointed as head of the mechanical design division at Olivetti's headquarters. 
And he's thinking to himself, this is just stupid. How could these guys stop working on computers just as computers are going to take over? So what he did, he did a skunk works project. He said, I don't care what these guys have to say. I'm going to keep working on my computer. So he started working on a clandestine project to build an electronic calculating machine. Now, its nickname was Peratina. Peratina. His name is Perato. So it's named after him. It's like a like a female Peratino. That was the need... nickname of his of his machine. You're talking Italian again. There we go. There you go. Peratino, that's the nickname of the machine. Now, uh, it was affectionately known. That was the code name. You see, it was a clandestine operation. They said, well, I'm going to work on the Peratino today. So <laughs> by 1962, they had achieved some remarkable success in the development of this machine. And he managed to convince the management to officially endorse it. So it came out of the Skunk Works, and it became an official project. And the company didn't like Peratino as the name because it shouldn't be named after some guy. It should be, like, more official. So they changed the name to Programma 101. <laughs> and he was a – which I think Peratino was – was, uh, what Peratino was a much better name. But they uh, – Programma 101. And he was appointed officially now team leader. Now, this used uh, an arithmetic uh, – in Italian, it's – Arithmetico Logica unit, uh-huh. <laughs> arithmetic and logic unit. It was built <laughs> with discrete transistors because back then we didn't have integrated circuits yet. So they were building this thing out of discrete transistors. Um, it used a mercury r- relay in order to provide uh, storage, short-term storage. And uh, it it could store this little storage, this little delay, this little mercury delay circuit could store 10 records, 22 digits each. Uh, And it it, uh, and it was, uh, you know, it was it was able to, uh, uh, you know, or a chain of 24 instructions. That was just short term memory. Now, in addition to arithmetic operations, it could run. They had they, they had a programming language that had 16 instructions in it. They could also transfer data between registers using conditional and non-conditional jumps. Like a conditional jump, what that means, if this condition is true, jump. If this condition is not true, don't jump. That's what that means. Where a non-conditional jump, it just says jump, and you jump, and there's no <laughs> condition to be evaluated. <laughs> Are you familiar with the uh, non-conditional jump statement, Jim? <laughs> I am not, no. No, it's just, Jim, jump. Oh. I'm sorry, I'm still seated. That's I right. I guess I failed. Okay, now I, guess, we I don't get a gold yeah. star now, today. If, if you are in your car, don't jump. Don't that would jump, be a condition. No. That would be a conditional statement. Now, right. now, the success of the machine also was based on its longer-term storage. It used a magnetic card to read and record uh, records, So because it, it, would, it was using for business applications. So a magnetic card to permanently store records, or it can be temporarily, but usually permanently store records. And it also used a magnetic tape where you would store the program on it, and the magnetic tape could hold 120 instructions. So this was the beginning of a real computer system as we knew it. And that storage on the magnetic card, uh, you, you could say that's similar to a floppy disk. 
where, where the disc is spinning as opposed to having a flop, uh, uh, you know, as opposed to having a, a fixed magnetic card. So they had all the elements built into this system to be quite powerful. Now, he also developed a programming language. He said the programming language has got to be easy to use because I don't want a bunch of like lab technicians in white coats to have to program this thing. I want the admin assistant to be able to program it if she's having to do a payroll. I want to make it simple. So he wrote a programming language that was very intuitive and easy to use. It, it turned out to be very popular. And soon there was an extensive library of programs that had been written by users. And they had stored these programs on the magnetic cards. And they had math calculations, civil, electrical engineering, business admin, and finance. I mean, it was really taken off. This guy was really an innovator. Now, they launched it in 1964, and it was featured at, at, in the, at Olivetti's New York Business Equipment Trade Show in 1965. And it was a roaring success. Now, uh, regular computers, I mean, big computers that would cost like $25,000 back in the day, but the Programma 101 was available for only $3,200. So a lot of people bought it. In 1969, it was used by NASA in planning the Apollo 11 space mission because they, they were trying to get rid of all their manual calculations. Uh, by the early 70s, almost 44,000 of these machines had been sold, mainly in the U.S. market. Then they had a subsequent design, the Olivetti P6060. Now, this was the first personal computer with an integrated floppy hard drive. So finally, they got rid of the magnetic card and they put in a floppy disk. And that, uh, that, was, that was the Olivetti P6060. Now, in 1967, he was appointed head of the company's research and development division. And what he did as head, he canceled that decision to get rid of computers. And he transformed the company from a mechanical device company to a major player in electronic systems and electronic devices. Probably saved the company, that, right? I think he did save the company, yeah. I mean, here's a case where a guy had a passion, he followed the passion, and he innovated despite the fact that the CEOs of the company did not have a mindset to innovate. That's why I wanted to feature this guy. From 1980 to 1993, he was president of Olivetti's consulting uh, subsidiary, Elia Spa. And uh, in 1991, he won the coveted Leonardo da Vinci Award from the Leonardo da Vinci Museum of Science and Technology in Milan for Programma 101 design. He retired in 1993 and lectured at the Turin Polytechnic. He wrote numerous books on strategic management. His last five years were spent uh, as president of a, a Finza Consulting, which was a company that he started with a friend of his. He was married, he had two sons, uh, and he settled in Liguria after his retirement. He died in Genoa in 2002 at age 71. So there you go, everything you'd want to know about Pierre Giorgio Parato, uh, also known as the Italian father of the PC. You want to know why you didn't know that Fiat was involved in aviation? Yes. Well, it's because they went out of business in 1969. Oh. 
apparently they weren't very successful at it. I thought I'd heard somewhere that they made aircraft engines because there are some Italian aircrafts. Uh, I yeah, know there's something not- that's made. It's a light aircraft called a Partnavion, I think is what it's called. Wait a minute, I need the music. There you go. And uh, it's a it's a very small twin-engine aircraft used over here. Uh, but uh, Fiat Aviazione went out of business in 1969. Thank you for that information. I had no idea, Jim. I'm here to help. I'm here for the Thank obscure you. and the who cares part of the show. Yes. All right. Uh, stay tuned. We're going to play the uh, pop quiz coming up in just a second. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, 107.7 FM HD2, southwest of Washington in Loudoun County, 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Oh, yes, thank you. you thank you very go, much. You let him go on a little longer than usual today. Uh, well, I, I just enjoy the applause, Jim. I just, I just like to soak up all that applause. We're, not, we're checking vaccine cards before they come in now. So. Oh, that's very good. I think yeah. that's extremely important. They can sit important. closer together. It is. Now, you know, and I'm going to welcome them back to Classroom of the Airways, but now I'm going to see whether they've actually been listening uh, to the if. show. Give them a small pop quiz. And if, if they get the right answer to the pop quiz, they'll get an A-plus for today's show, plus uh, tickets to find dining at one of our dining rooms when they open, and I think we're probably getting pretty close to that once we, once we get the old vaccines out there. <laughs> so earlier in the show, I was talking about Pierre Giorgio Perato. He, of course, is the Italian father of the PC. Now, after, and he was working at Olivetti when he did, when he, uh, uh, we did this, but in 1960, Olivetti, they 
actually shut down the entire computer division because they thought, the CEOs thought that mechanical devices were really the future. Uh, now, Pierre Perotto absolutely disagreed with that. So he started working on a personal computer or handheld calculator that was programmable in secretly. He had skunk works. And this particular device, while it was a secret project, had a very interesting nickname that everybody affectionately called it. What was the nickname of that device while it was being secretly developed within Olivetti? This is not an essay question. If you know the answer to today's question, get out of your Easter basket and give us a call. Dialing from west of the Rockies, 877-936-9333. If you're standing next to a pile of hollow chocolate Easter bunnies east of Plydale Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're stress testing your aircraft in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. It's sanitized hourly using Reese's peanut butter eggs. 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's our Easter Bunny, Dr. Richard Schertz. Well, thank Talk you very it. much, and I certainly... You know, Jim, it is hard to give this show dressed up in an Easter Bunny outfit. Yeah. But I'm doing it. I'm doing it despite all the challenges. And you deserve all of our admiration for it. And the one thing I discovered is I can wear my Easter Bunny outfit to the store, and I don't have to put on a mask. Because you're because, wearing a fake bunny Because the bunny head. outfit is the mask. Yes, right. Just, just a small tidbit. Uh, well, what I want to talk about now is Sing. <laughs> you needed a laugh for that. <laughs> now, only it's, it's, pronounced, it's uh, spelled S-exclamation-point-N-G, and it's a launch. It's, a, it's an application that you can use to make non-fungible tokens, NFTs, and it's used so creators can sell their creation on the web and make money on it. So now Sings is a, is a tool that allows creators to control the distribution and it allows them to monetize their work. And it was launched as a free app on, uh, on the iPhone and also on the uh, Android device. So immediately I downloaded it. I wanted to give it a shot. So, of course, NFTs are non-fungible tokens. They allowed artists to verify their uh, work with a unique uh, with a unique signature, which means that a person can prove that they bought the work from that particular artist, and it's and they can then it's it's like a certificate of authenticity, if you will, and uh, it's free to download. Uh, it uses blockchain technology, by the way. It's sitting on top of the Ethereum blockchain, so it it validates the, um, the the fact that this particular NFT has been transferred or not transferred. It can't be used more than once, and it's all validated in the Ethereum blockchain, which uh, which uh, is a distributed ledger, and they pay people to validate each block as additional data is added, and they're given cryptocurrency to do that work. And the cryptocurrency for Ethereum is Ether. And, but this is just built on top of the Ethereum platform. Now, Sing was co-founded by Jim Harmon and Jeff Osler. They're veterans of Apple and Adobe. And they also got a lot of input from musicians, visual artists, and entertainment executives. So um, I downloaded Sing. I don't know how to pronounce it. S exclamation point NG Sing. I downloaded it uh, yesterday. 
And I picked two pictures that everybody likes. I've got a sunrise here at over over the bay that people just love the colors in it. And I've got a picture that I took at Santorini, the island, that's got all these blue domes. It's a beautiful picture. Everybody wants a print of that. So I created two NFTs of those pictures, one one at each picture. I uploaded it and assigned it as an, assigned an NFT to it. And it took me only 20 minutes to do that, Jim. I just said, I'm a photographer. You can put your photos up there. And then they're, they are linking up with an auction site where people can then auction off their, uh, their NFTs. And, and people are just flocking to this. We'll just see what happens. I'll let you know if I make any money on it. I, don't, I, I, I doubt if I'll make much on it, but it, it's just fun to go through the process. If you do, I suspect I'll be doing the show by myself. I, you never know. You never know, Jim. So you can you can go to the app store and search for S explanation point NG and download it. I went on the site this morning to try to check the status of my NFTs, my two NFTs. I couldn't log on. And I got a I got a message from the CEO. They said there's been such overwhelming support for this that they they they, they don't have the infrastructure to handle all the users. So They've got their developers working on scaling the system to handle all of the users that are after it. This is a device that everybody's been waiting for. It's for non-techies if you want to create your own NFT. All right. We have somebody who'd like to play our little game. Let us go to line. Oh, wait a minute. I'm going to say this in Italian. Riga numero una. Oh, very good. You like that? This is uh, Anne calling us from Fredericksburg. Anne, good morning. How are you? Buongiorno. I'm just uh, fine. Very good. <laughs> oh, excellent. Earlier in the show, I talked about Pier Giorgio Perato. He, of course, is the Italian father of the PC. When he was working on his uh, original uh, programmable calculator in the Skunk Works here at Olivetti, what was the affectionate name that everyone gave it? It was Peratina. Oh, Whoa, my goodness. that is so good. I think we need to give Ann the prize there, maybe two, because of the just the perfect pronunciation. Yes. Ann, thanks for listening. Thanks for playing. And uh, we'll get that prize right out to you. And hopefully soon you'll be able to have your free lunch at Stratford University. It is Saturday morning. This is Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network. You can hear us a lot of places on the dial. You can hear us at uh, 1500 a.m. here in Washington. You can also hear us. Uh, on uh, 103.5 uh, FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Go to stratford.edu and learn more about the programs at Stratford University. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford 
Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. Yes. Maybe when you get some money from your non-fungible token, you can fix the door. Oh. I'll work on that. You know, okay. Jim, maybe I'll sell the door as a non-fungible token. <laughs> or maybe you'll get a shot and can you can take the door off the hinges. Yeah, that might be it. Well, you know, today, uh, this week uh, in the bunker, I started thinking about the culture of innovation. Look at what happened to Olivetti. They, you know, the, the visionary president died and immediately the finance people canceled the one thing that gave them hope for survival, and they went back to the tried and true product that was about ready to become obsolete. So they obviously did not have a culture of innovation there, yet there was one man in the organization that did. So I went back and I, I, I thought I would, uh, you know, so I went back and looked at some of the research that Gary Pisano had done. He's uh, at with the Harvard Business School, and he looked at what characteristics do companies have to have if they want to foster a culture of innovation? And he came up with five things, which I thought were kind of interesting, and I'll share them with you. Number one, you must have a tolerance for failure, but not a tolerance for incompetence, okay? Mm -hmm. So if somebody fails because they just can't do the job, they're out of there. If they fail because they tried something that was very difficult, and they just didn't get over the finish line, that's okay. Mistakes are made to learn from, right? Exactly. And so innovation involves exploring the unknown. So it's not always surprising that you're going to fail, you know, a, a number of times. And so you tolerate that, but you just don't tolerate incompetence. So there's a balance here. You've got the good and the bad. You favor, you allow failure, but not incompetence. You have to have a willingness to experiment but then you're highly disciplined. I mean, you want to embrace experimentation. Uh, you've got to be comfortable with ambiguity, uncertainty. The willingness to experiment, though, does not mean that you're just some third-rate abstract painter randomly throwing paint on a canvas. <laughs> Without discipline, almost anything can be justified as an experiment. So you have to have the discipline to pick the right experiments. You've got to have a psychologically safe but brutally candid environment. Uh, you, have to, you have to be able to tell people they're wrong. Uh, you have to have a climate where people feel comfortable telling the truth and that there will be no retribution. But, it, but it's a two-way street. If the boss can tell you candidly what he thinks you're doing wrong, you can also tell the boss what he is doing wrong. That type of sharing 
of candid, candid feedback is extremely important. Uh, unvarnished candor is critical to innovation because it means that the ideas will evolve and improve rather than stay stagnant. You have collaboration, but you've got individual accountability. You want to collaborate, you want to get ideas, but in the end, one person makes a decision and they're accountable for their decision. Like for instance, Amazon, uh, Jaffe, who started the, uh, the Amazon Web Services, he collaborated with all the computer science departments within Amazon when he came up with the first product for Amazon Web Services, but he committed to those decisions he was accountable for those decisions. And so collaboration is not consensus. Collaboration means you try to get the best of the ideas, but somebody makes somebody has to make the decision and they have to be held accountable. And finally, you need flat but strong leadership. Now, what that means, a culturally flat organization means that people are given the latitude to make decisions, voice their opinions, and deference is granted on the basis of competence, not title. So people that have to go through the chain of command and you can't talk to somebody in the other group, all that's out the window. You can talk to anybody that you want to. Culturally flat organizations typically respond more quickly to rapidly changing circumstances because the decisions are decentralized. So if a company has these five traits, tolerance for failure, but no tolerance for incompetence. Willingness to experiment, but highly disciplined. Psychologically safe, but brutally candid. Collaboration, but with individual accountability. And finally, flat, but strong leadership. They're on the way to creating a culture of innovation. So let me see here. Should we just shoot right on here, Jim? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think we, we should just you know continue on. Okay, so Biden is going to let Trump's H-1 visa ban expire. After this story, Jim, I'm going to get to the email, 50, the 50-year uh, the, the email celebration. And, and I'll be now, ready. Now, what Trump did, he, he canceled H-1B visas because they didn't want foreign workers. And I think that was a strategic mistake because we get the brightest and the best coming to this country to get an education, and then they want to get stay longer on an H-1B visa and contribute to the economy. I think those are exactly the kind of people we need to build the economy. I think that was, uh, that was a mistake that Trump made, and I, I didn't agree with that. Uh, and, and Biden is reversing that, so I think we're going to start seeing more H-1B visas coming down the pike. Now let's talk about uh, the um, email. Email. We're all we all love no one love email. Email Sometimes is now it. 50 years old. If you can imagine, Jim, half a century ago, an MIT graduate, Ray Tomlinson, became the first person to transmit a message from one computer to another. Although it'd be years before we refer to this practice as email. It wasn't called email that back then. Now Tomlinson worked for an engineering firm, Bolt, Baranek, and Newman. Uh, BBN. Sounds like a and law they a, firm. They had a contract, Bolt, Baranek, and Newman, and they and they uh, they had a contract with U.S. Department of Defense to help build the ARPANET, which is a precursor to the internet. And uh, at the time, computers were isolated from one another. They were extremely expensive, and they were used by maybe 10, 10 20 different people. 
and and there and and you would want to talk to some of the other users so you could drop a note in their mailbox. Now, with the arrival of the ARPANET, you roughly had 20 machines connected, and you were used by more than 1,000 people. So it didn't make sense to just drop a note into a subdirectory for somebody to read. You had to get a, a better way to do that. And so Tomlinson came up with the idea that he would glue together a program called the ARPANET Send Message Utility with the file transfer program that had been working on, and he used this creation to fire an email into the in inbox on another machine. And what he did, he separated the username uh, and the destination address, which was the uh, destination of the other machine, with the ampersand symbol. So it would be rsherds ampersand stratford.edu. And so he basically created the first, the first email format. And so it started out, they would just communicate all within the same machine, and you would just send a message to somebody's inbox on their machine. You didn't need them, then you just you just you just copy the file and put it there. But what when you had 20 machines, you had to find a way to put the document in the inbox on another machine. And that's where he came up with the format for the email. So so we sent the first email back uh, back around 1971. Uh, roughly since that time, 306 billion emails have been, are sent and received each day in 2020. Mm. Each day, wow. 306 billion emails. Uh, probably 300 billion of them are spam. <laughs> <laughs> now, projections suggest that this will rise to 375 billion by 2021. Now, 20 years ago... Uh, they Nathaniel Borstein created the mime. Now this isn't for pantomime. This is the multi-purpose internet mail extension. Oh, and that allows you to send pictures or you could send music. So the first mime attachment was sent in 1992, and it was a picture of a barbershop quartet that was in the lab that created the mime protocol. And these guys had their own name called the telephone cords. And so we sent a picture of the telephone cords along with an audio of the telephone cords. And hopefully we have that somewhere on our We, we do, computer. and here it is. Nope, that's oh, not wait it. A minute. Al took over the computer there. Hal took over the computer there for a minute. We, we do have it. You know, there's nothing like a really good barbershop quartet. <laughs> yeah, first thing on a that, Saturday these, morning. these guys. Uh, uh, you know, it just brings tears to my eyes hearing that hearing that barbershop quartet <laughs> well, thing there. You know, for a minute, it it did remind <laughs> me of Hal there for just a second. So, <laughs> and he did take over. Wait a minute, there he is. 
Doesn't, doesn't it remind you? Oh, sounds just, yeah. Sounds just like uh, him. Hal, you uh -huh. know, on his last gasp trying to stay alive <laughs> there. Now, IBM created a, a debate program. You know, I, when I was in high school and college, I was in, I was in debate. I mean, the, the beautiful thing about debate, you argue on both sides of the question. So one hour, you're the affirmative. The next hour, you're negative. So it, it gives you the ability to argue With yourself. <laughs> about anything on any side and flip sides at the, at the drop of a hat. Mm -hmm. And so AI, uh, uh, IBM developed an AI debater, and they actually... Uh, and they published the results of their AI debate program in uh, in Nature magazine. And so the, it was called Project Debater. It was an autonomous debating system that can engage, engage in a competitive debate with humans. Now, in a test of Project Debater, the AI program was given only 15 minutes to research topics to prepare for debates. I mean, that's a little bit like I used to do extemporaneous speaking and, and you draw you draw a topic out of a hat, and they would give you 30 minutes to prepare your talk. And so that that was one of the things I used to enjoy doing that. Now they but they were only given 15 minutes to prepare uh, for the debate each time, and it provided. And each time they would uh, the project debater, the AI system would have an opening statement, and they would have a layer of counter arguments that would argue against the other team. For the most part, I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad to say the humans won, uh, <laughs> for the most part. But there was one particular debate where nine people in the audience felt that Project Debater won, hmm. which was not bad for the debut. Now, according to IBM, AI is not here to replace humans, but rather to support them in building better arguments. Uh, this reminds me of the AI teaching assistant at Stanford called Watson, where, uh, you know, he would answer student questions, interact with them. And that AI teaching assistant at Stanford won the teaching assistant of the year award yeah, because the professor never told him it was an AI bot. So there you go. AI is here to stay without a doubt about that. North Korean hackers are charged with cryptocurrency theft. This is what's going on here. They, they basically have been trying to steal or extort more than $1.3 billion in cash and cryptocurrency. The programmers are part of the North Korean Military Intelligence Agency, and they've, they're accused of creating and deploying multiple, multiple uh, malicious cryptocurrency applications and to develop and fraudulently market a, block, uh, a blockchain platform. Now, the scheme deployed using repeated spear phishing campaigns from 2016 to 2018, and they got a, they got a few of the defense workers to bite on it, and ultimately they were able to take control of bank ATMs and make a lot of money. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at statford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.